0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special issue of the MDS podcast. Today, I'm here with the venerable Stan Fahn, who recently wrote an article that is part of a new series in Movement Disorders Clinical Practice entitled, What is the Most Important and Impactful Paper Related to Movement Disorder Therapy, Published in the 20th Century? For his choice, he chose an article from 1967. Aromatic Amino Acids and Modification of Parkinsonism by Dr. Katsius, which reported for the first time on levodopa therapy in Parkinson's disease and its effect on patients. Welcome to the program, Dr. Fawn.
1: Thank you. Thanks, glad to be here.
0: So why don't we start by you just telling us about the paper you chose and how this one made the top of your list. Sure.
1: Well, uh, when I was asked uh, if I would be willing to write such a paper, and I agreed, I mean, uh, it was because uh, the most obvious choice came to mind immediately. I didn't have to do much thinking about it. Um, This paper, which I'll describe in a minute, uh, changed therapy for Parkinson's disease enormously. It was revolutionary. Uh, It allowed people with Parkinson's disease to become much more mobile, uh, no longer being a prison within their own body and unable to move and, and get out. They were able to get out of the wheelchair, uh, these advanced patients. And that that's just one aspect. It also changed neurology and medicine. We had a, something to treat. And when I was a resident, uh, we didn't have levodopa in those days and uh, uh, it was uh, difficult to, to treat our Parkinson patients. They would come in for physical therapy, we would go to the parkinson clinic and, and give them the anticholinergic medicines uh, and uh, w- but we see them deteriorate in front of our eyes and, uh, and it was not a pleasant way. It used probably the way Alzheimer's was, was treated you know we didn't have really very effective medicines, and uh, even today, Alzheimer's is difficult to treat for those who do that, and you see the patients declining. So it changed uh, neurology in that sense. We had something to treat, and um, all the rest of the medicines followed suit. And, in fact, uh, George Koch won the Alaska Award for Clinical Medicine that same. And in 1969, after the L-DOPA paper, um, I should just start out by this 1967 paper was D-L-DOPA. And 1969, he he repeated it, but with L-DOPA and And it wasn't the first person to use dl dopa it, um, it was the first person who successfully used high dosage levodopa, dl dopa and then l dopa
0: Would you mind clarifying for our listeners the difference between the two
1: yes uh, d l stands for dextro and levorotatory uh isomers of of uh, dopa uh that comes in a levorotatory form and, and a dextral rotatory form, uh, another is right and left, uh, levo is left, dextral is right, uh, and that that's true with many, many chemicals, uh, and in, the, in terms of amino acid, which levodopa is an amino acid, the active form is the levodopa rotatory form, but it was very expensive to purify pure L-dopa in those days, and uh, so DL was uh, much cheaper, and you can use the high doses, which is what Katya said. I'll come back to his experiment in a little bit. I, I just wanted to finish um, one other thought I had about the impactfulness of that paper when it came out, is not only did it help the people with Parkinson's, and not only did it help neurologists, but it it certainly it brought a whole new realm to neuroscience. Basic scientists, a lot of them drove went into the field of dopamine research and basal ganglia research. It really opened up that field as well. And uh, and uh, basal ganglia clubs were started. And, uh, and of course, in terms of neurology, uh, the subspecialty of movement disorder started. And I know that was one of the topics you want me to cover, uh, Sarah, but, and we can come to that at the end, but uh, without levodopa, a lot of people wouldn't be, a lot of neurologists wouldn't be going into this field. It's not that there weren't some people specializing in Parkinson's disease uh, in, in the world. There, was a, there were a few clinics like that, um, but uh, this trove of people that went into it after uh, levodopa be, became uh, an effective drug uh, was enormous. And that's how uh, the society, Movement Disorder Society, really got started because of all the people into the field. And it's not just Parkinson's disease that was impacted, but because of levodopa uh, through its action in cerebral dopamine, converting an akinetic person into a hyperkinetic person, we recognize the, the interrelationships between all these different abnormal movement states and uh, tied in through the basal ganglia. And uh, that, that again, brought this field, not just the Parkinson field, but a field with chorea and ticks and you can add tremors and myoclonus. You can add all uh, everything, and and even today we've expanded to ataxias in, in the field. Right? It, it turns out the cerebellum's influencing some of our, these other movement disorders. So levodopa, that that paper had a tremendous impact. When I when I think of uh, what other important papers there were, I mean it was hard to come up with. And certainly in Parkinson's disease we can all exclaimed the benefit of uh, deep brain stimulation and its major impact in open-up surgery. But before there was deep brain stimulation, there was uh, thalamotomies and pallidotomies. And uh, that was actually the most effective treatments for Parkinson's disease before L-DOPA. L-DOPA wiped out that type of surgery. And the only reason deep brain stimulation came back is because of uh, the complications we've had with levodopa and it was insufficient. We couldn't adequately treat and still can't today. Even in many patients that, that treat the clinical fluctuations and the dyskinesias that people get with levodopa. So it's not the perfect drug. In fact, we're still trying to improve it, uh, with variations of how to in, initiate and uh, continue treatment with levodopa, uh, and, and how to, and modified forms of, of administration so uh it, it's not the perfect drug but it, it really changed the impact of, of eliminating one type of surgery and allowing another type of surgery to be developed like deep brain stimulation and if you think of other diseases i know i'm talking uh too much maybe but if you think of other diseases which would in, mo- in the field of movement disorders like chorea's i mean You know, yeah, we have had treatment of the koreas, mainly uh, reducing korea, we can do that. Again, through the dopamine system by blocking dopamine receptors or eliminating dopamine from the brain. And and you can argue that even uh, extending it to dystonias. I mean, certainly we learned about uh, dopa-responsive dystonia through L-DOPA and uh, some of the other dystonias. And and, uh, anyway, so I can't think of any other treatments that we had that had such a major impact uh, in the whole field of movement disorders is the, the levodopa one. And when I say levodopa, I'm also referring to D-L-Dopa, which is the earlier paper, but that's only because L-Dopa was too expensive for George Conscious to use. Uh, so th- that's why I, I picked that paper.
0: You really touched on a lot of the things that I'd like to expound on a bit in this podcast. Thanks for that overview. Um, In your article, you take us through the early discoveries of the role of dopamine in Parkinsonism from animal studies to autopsy studies. I don't want to belabor the details here since listeners can refer to the article. One would think that these animal and cadaveric studies about dopamine in the brain and its role in Parkinsonism would have paved the way for the clinical studies that you highlight from Katzias and others, but that's not really how it actually happened, is it? It seems like it was a little bit more of an accident that Katzias was going down a completely different path. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. uh, Actually, uh, George Katzias got to the right treatment, but for the wrong reasons. And uh, I'll I'll explain that. Uh, But first... I want to touch in on the earlier basic science that led to even thinking of levodopa as a therapy. Katjes was not the first to think of it. In fact, as I said already, uh, he didn't use it to replace levod- to replace missing dopamine. He-, he knew about missing dopamine. That was a very important basic science. And if one wants to go back before Katjes' day, uh, you can uh, highlight the basic science work of d- discovering low dopamine in the brain in people with Parkinsonism. uh, Discovering dopamine in the brain in the first place, discovering that reserpine induced Parkinson's response to L-DOPA, I mean, all these things are extremely of vital importance to developing the concept of L-DOPA as a therapy in replacing missing dopamine. But that, and George Kotchis knew all about that. He referred to those papers in his DL, DL DOPA paper in 1967. Uh, but he dismissed them. There was no great success stories of treatment. Low dose IV L-dopa uh, into patients gave them transient benefit, if at all. And there were more papers that clinical trials that failed to show benefit, than there were papers that did show some benefit. So it was highly controversial. Even uh, Hornykiewicz, who discovered low dopamine in the brain, and uh, was with Berkmeyer, the first to really give uh, low dose L-dopa intravenously to patients, said that, you know, it's, it's difficult to use, that uh, it causes nausea and vomiting, you can't use high doses, you have to give it intravenously in small doses, it only has a limited effect, a short-term duration effect. And so it wasn't the right therapy, he concluded, I mean, but we need something better. Uh, and that's what why George Koch's contributions are even more important because there was this concept that maybe there's something to replacing dopamine in the brain, but how do we get there but George conscious just to answer your question now, why did he use l dopa or d l dopa and the first one, and it was because he had a different hypothesis. His hypothesis was that Parkinson's was not due to dopamine deficiency but was. Uh, that that was a sort of a side effect. Uh, it was due to lack of neuromelanin. Uh, it was the depletion of neuromelanin in the brains of patients. And if you just replace the neuromelanin, you would restore health to people with Parkinson's. And that was his mission. And how was he going to do that? He he first gave uh, melan- melanocyte stimulating hormone to patients to stimulate the melanocytes to bring up create melanin. Uh, And if anything, that that made people worse. And he tried to explain that. He thought, thought, well, maybe he was converting all that melanin to skin melanin and rather basal ganglia melanin, substantial nigran melanin, in other words. And so he dismissed it. So, and that's when he went to L-DOPA. He even tried uh, phenylalanine, the L-phenylalanine as a precursor to levodopa and dopamine. Uh, and, and that didn't work either, but D-LDOPA did. And now why was he successful when so many other people weren't, when they did try it? Well, Katsyis had two explanations. One is go slow and increase the dosage, gradually avoiding the side effect that limits the high dosage treatment, which is nausea and vomiting. And he was able to do this as inpatients in a Federal government-run hospital where there was no cost to the patient. Patients could stay in the hospital as long as they want. Uh, I don't think they had IRBs in those days. I don't know what kind of consent form was ever done in those days. He brought them in, and, and, and the patients, I guess, verbally agreed uh, to try L-dopa and be in the hospital for weeks and months to, to build the dose up. It's only when he was hitting 8 to 12 grams a day of levod- L-dopa. Uh, that he was getting this dramatic effect. Of course, the deal, dopa had its own side effects, including bone marrow changes, and uh, he immediately switched to L-dopa with his first success. And so that's how he was able to do it. And and the only other person that gave high doses for a shorter period of time was Patrick McGear, a ph- neuropharmacologist at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, uh, Canada. Uh, and he tried it, but he didn't probably go long enough uh, to see the change. He he also tried it in, in um, drug induced Parkinson's. He didn't have the reserpine induced Parkinson's patients as much as he had. Don't mean antagonist uh, induced Parkinsonism, and of course the receptors are blocked and L-dopa doesn't seem to work in, in that situation. So uh, he 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 tried it, and he also compared it with very high doses diazodrin. Hydromine, hydramine that is Benadryl, very high doses. And uh, he found the high dose of Benadryl was even more superior. There was also a neurologist in Japan, Isamu Asano, uh, who tried L-Dopa in one patient and reported some benefit. But again, he didn't think it was better than high doses try for example. Uh, but again, they didn't use long-term doses of L-Dopa. And that was one of the Clues. I mean, when I went into the business, I was now a young assistant professor, uh, and I was trying uh, levodopa. We had to bring him in the hospital and build the dose up gradually. They were weeks in the hospital in order to avoid the nausea and vomiting. And uh, and, and and I guess you know the expense and the insurance companies paying for it or not paying for the hospitalization. It was rather limited in doing this. So uh, George. Uh, really succeeded because he had the government hospital behind him. He worked for a federal institution, Brookhaven National Laboratory, uh, where he did his research. So uh, it, it, it all came together with the right drug, the right means of treating. And that's a lesson for how to treat anything with high dosage. And I use that same method to treat with high dosage, for for dystonia, same principle, goes slow and, start low and go slow. And uh, that, that way you avoid the side effects and get the high doses. So we may be missing many other treatments in neurology because of this uh, ability to not to, to get the to high doses safely. A- anyway, it, it, it's a, that's what made this paper so even more fantastic. Uh, the fact that he succeeded when nobody else did it and he did it for the wrong reason. Uh, so it's just a wonderful story. And uh, he was rewarded right away with recognition around the world. The honorary memberships of societies. Again, I mentioned the Lasker Award after his 1969 paper. In 1967, 68, I can't remember the year now. But in Montreal, Andre Barbeau organized. At the, there was a, the uh, World's Fair was in Montreal that year, and he organized the symposium. On the basal ganglia, and and, and, um, and uh, George Koch was there. It showed his videos. Or, or, no, the Norton videos those days, movies. He showed his movies. It, it was so fantastic to see these people get out of a chair and walk. I mean, right away, all of those in the audience went back to home, our homes and started working on getting, uh, buying L DOPA up and, and started using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of open label trials. Uh, supporting Koch's finding. I actually report some people who low doses before it with not much success, like Andre Barbeau, but then they switched to high doses and then everybody was successful. So it really had a major impact on, on all of medicine, on the patients, the whole society, of, as I said, even the movement disorder society.
0: The whole story is really, truly remarkable. And I have to say, as as a relatively junior faculty member in movement disorders, I didn't know the whole story until I was reading all about this. I, I can't believe that the role of dopamine repletion was almost completely discounted because there had been so many failures. I It's amazing to me, the doses that they had to get up to, which really goes to show you how much carbidopa impacts you know, the ability of L-dopa to get into the brain. And and the fact that Katsius was going down a completely different path to begin with makes me think about that trope in science that it's not made in the eureka moments, you know, the confirmations of what you think is true, but actually in the that's strange moments, which I have to imagine probably happened to him as he was going down this path, looking at neuromelanin and ending up with dopamine.
1: Yeah, that that's a story of very interesting. And, you know, he, he did train in medicine and, and, and neurology even, and uh, but he right went away right away into pharmacology. But so to the two other big heroes in, in this, this dopamine story, uh, Harvard Carlson was also a, a medical doctor, but he did not practice. He went right away into pharmacology. And the same thing with Ole Uh Carlson in Sweden and Hornikiewicz in Vienna. Both of them uh, had of MDs and they went into neuropharmacology and didn't have a medical license. When Hornikiewicz te- had to, t- to get his patients, he teamed up with Berkmeyer, who was a neurologist geriatrician was training all the Parkinson patients in Vienna. So he had the patients um, and uh, they had, they had all these brains available that Hornikiewicz was able to study for his measuring dopamine levels in the brain, uh, which was predicted by uh, Harvard Carlson, who showed that you can use reserpine animals who were flaked out with akinesia and gave L-DOPA and they got this awakening effect. They became alert. Uh, in contrast, he, the previous hypothesis was reserpine caused this effect by depleting serotonin, which it does deplete serotonin, but he gave also the precursor serotonin, 5-HTP, and that did not do anything in terms of causing this awakening. Only the L-DOPA uh, precursor, that is, to dopamine did it, or also the precursor of norepinephrine. He didn't, when when uh, Carlson did that experiment, he didn't even know that dopamine was in the brain. Uh, they, in those days, dopamine was just a precursor to norepinephrine, which was known to be in the brain. Uh, and Koch, although he wasn't the first to show dopamine in the brain, he did develop a, a very sensitive method to measure dopamine and uh, and the tissues, and uh, showed that was there, and it was his team, people in his laboratory, uh, graduate students, that mapped out the distribution in the brain of dopamine and show it in the in the stratum, and that was the the key. That was the key to Hornykiewicz's idea that dopamine is important because it's so highly localized in the stratum. Which is involved, of course, uh, in basal and movement disorders in those days, extrapyramidal disorders was called. And so that's what made him go into this field. But of course, he had some training in, in England and uh, dopamine research. So it, it wasn't new to this, but, and he was all alert to all the research going on on dopamine in those days. So he was uh, also primed to move into this field. You know, it's, it's the young people who, who don't have an established field, they can. Go into a new field very easily and quickly. They don't. They have a very short turnaround. I guess it's like a big ocean liner can't turn quickly where a little ship can. Well, the same thing with young investigators. Your 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 field's open, and that's what happened to me. Uh, I, I was working on sodium ATPase uh, and and, the,
0: and and animal
1: models, and animals and um, like electric organ, electric eel, and uh, when I saw this uh, conscious thing, and I, that turned me around. I said I got to go into the, basal ganglion biochemistry. And from there, of course, uh, got into the L-DOPA story. Uh, So, you know, when you're young, you you have that ability to switch now when you're already established in a big lab, it's much more difficult. Uh, You would need some of the young people in your lab to go into that field. And So this is a golden opportunity when something comes along for a young person to switch. Uh, It's another good lesson for all of us.
0: So tell me about that journey you know, obviously you were inspired by what you were hearing uh, on his research and, and all of this new information about dopamine. And you mentioned that you were on a little bit of a different path at first. Who or what was instrumental in that switch? How did that go? And what was it like to be a clinician, a neurologist at the time when such an enormous Shift in care was taking place.
1: Yeah, well, as I hinted at at the beginning of this podcast, uh, treating people with Parkinson's was always more of a drudgery in a way for us residents in neurology in those days. Uh, uh, in Columbia, where I trained, uh, Louis Doche was the Parkinsonologist, and he would bring patients in. We would see them in the hospital for him, mostly getting physical therapy and, of course, getting their anticholinergic medicines and we would all have to spend rotate a month every year in the parkinson clinic with him and uh again you know you get frustrated because you see these patients slipping uh even though you try your best to help them and there's not much you can do so and that's when when irving cooper came out with the deep not deep the with the th- 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 pallonomy for and, and thalamotomies uh, that revolutionized treatment and there's a lot of people coming into hospitals for surgery and, uh, Irving Cooper was praised right and left around the world with honorary degrees everywhere. And, um, and that was exciting. Of course, they had all their complications too, and nobody really went back to work after those operations. Uh, and that, and so when the L-Dopa story broke, it was really big news. And, uh, as I said, I, my, uh, exact moment of my ability to switch came from one talk that I heard. In 1965, there was a symposium at Columbia University at Melvin Yar and some colleagues organized on the biochemistry and pharmacology of the basal ganglia. And he invited many speakers. Uh, Koches was not one of them. He, he was not involved in those days, 1965. Uh, but he had Carlson there He had Hornikavich there. He had many other scientists there. And it wasn't all about dopamine. It was all, you know, there's a lot of acetylcholine studies uh, reported and things like that. Anyway, it was a two-day symposium. I went to the lectures. When Hornikavich spoke and showed his uh, slides of dopamine depletion, practically, depletion in the brain, in the basal ganglia, first the, the stratum was done and then later the nigra. I, I, it just woke me up. Uh, I, I was so awe in awe of that report that I knew there had to be something there, and the basal ganglia biochemistry was unknown. So I switched my field to basal ganglia biochemistry. I was really mostly in the lab in those days. So that that got me into the field, and uh, then of course the L-Dopa story broke. There was no no treatment other than anticholinergics in 1965. Uh, until uh, Katja's February, 1967, the El Dopa paper came out. And that's when it shook the world uh, because we're all surprised by it. Katja didn't give any papers and talks. about it. It wasn't until later that fall in Montreal, I mentioned that Andre Barbeau's symposium that he presented his data and showing movies. So it was, uh, my moment was was Hornick Averidge's talk. And I was fortunate enough to, uh, to know Dr. Hornakiewicz later uh, and I met him and talked to him. I even told him that story. He was uh, pleased and he gave me his uh, signed autograph paper of his, his uh, sort of his autobiography and, uh, and his story about the L-DOPA uh, discoveries and uh, wrote me a note on it, a uh, personal note. So it's very nice that, that he got credit for this, because I gave him the credit. And uh, and certainly, Hornikiewicz and, Koch and uh, Carlson deserve equal credit with. Uh, Koch, if we have to give three people the Nobel Prize for <laughs> for this discovery, I would share it among the three of them. As, as it turns out, only Carlson of the three got the Nobel Prize for his pioneering work, and Hornikiewicz did not, but he got many other prizes Ornikevich. and so it is conscious, of course. And, and, and so it is a fascinating story in, in the neurology uh, in general, not just movement disorders. In fact, if you can look at Parkinson's disease in terms of all of neurology, uh, it led the way in many things. Not only did they have the first treatments, of anticholinergics, they had the first surgery uh, for treating these degenerative diseases, they had the first transplantation attempts in treating neurodegenerative diseases and so forth. All along the line, uh, Parkinson's was leading the way, and it's still doing so. So people going into the field of movement disorders have a lot of great history behind them, but also a great future in front of them.
0: I'm definitely going to get to the future of movement disorders research later on. I do want to ask, do you remember the first patient that you gave L-DOPA to
1: uh, well i i do what happened i
0: uh,
1: when all when the conscious paper came out i was uh, at, at columbia at that time i was recruited from nih after my residency at columbia to come back to columbia and uh, they had uh, new laboratories at the medical center uh, and uh, Mel yar was in control of that with a big, big grant and they had an opening, uh, one lab and they, they came back for, to recruit me to come back and do my research at Columbia. And, uh, that's when I, uh, that was in 1965 when I came back. And that's when that symposium was done that Mel Yard was the chief co- organizer for, uh, that I just mentioned where Hornekevich and, and, uh, Carlson spoke, for example, uh, and so that's when I started working on the basal ganglion biochemistry, working with another colleague, Lucien Cote, who was also enrolled. Trained when he trained one year ahead of me, and he was in the lab doing research too. Uh, and we we did a lot of work on that. And we found that substantia nigra was a really hotbed of activity. It was uh, the highest concentration of GABA, the highest concentrations of um, tyrosine hydroxylase activity, that were the enzyme that makes the... Eventually, uh, dopamine and catecholamines, and uh, and the highest and the basis the stratum was the highest activity of acetylcholine esterase, uh, acetylcholine esterase. and so all this activity was going on in the nigra and in the basal ganglia, in general. So uh, it was a hotbed, and uh, the uh, in fact that's how how I got to meet David Marsden. He, David uh, had been working since a medical student on the phylogeny of the substantia nigra, and he did a great study looking at from the zoo, getting animals and measuring uh, the size of the substantia nigra and all these animals and showed that it increases in size genetically to to humans. Uh, And, of course, humans had the most pigment. Um, uh, Elephants had had a pretty big uh, substantia nigra as well. Uh, anyway, he did this work and, and got a lot of praise and he, he got into the field of movement disorders early on too uh, with this training in neurology at Queen Square. And uh, so uh, in Montreal, he attended that same symposium that Lucien Cote and I went to where we presented our work on this the high enzymatic activities and the substant- substantia nigra and uh, in, in, in primates. And uh, Marsden's hypothesis at the time of uh, his work as a medical student on the substantia nigra was that it's a sort of a dead tissue. It's there, it's growing in size, but it was all pigmented and it doesn't do anything. And so he heard our paper, he came up to us afterwards and we met him and the three of us, Lucian, David and myself, we went to the world's fair that night together. We rode the roller coaster together David was much more of a risk taker than Lucian and I were, and he had to sit on the front car of the uh, of the roller coaster. He wouldn't get in the roller coaster until we were on the front car. So we let the other people behind us get in, and then we took the next train uh, car ride because uh, he, he had to get that excitement of going down the curve. And, and I'm holding on the railing with dear life. <laughs> it was, it was a great day. Anyway, we bonded very well at that time and we've worked together ever since. Uh, so, <laughs> but those nice experiences to have. And I look back on that with fun now. And, uh, but, uh, the, the impact of, of that meeting, uh, then we all got involved with LDOPA and David went back of course did his work in, in London. And uh, we did ours. I was, I, I got invited to, with Bud Rollin to go to Pennsylvania. So that's when I teamed up with a neurologist already starting L-dopa, and I teamed up with him, Gabe Gabriel Schwartz, uh, and I would bring in the patients. It was his patients. He had all the patients of Parkinson's. He 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 would ask them to come in, and I would treat them. So I was the in in hospital doctor treating them. And the first patient was a, a, a. a middle-aged man, but quite laid back with Parkinson's already. And uh, by the time we had six grams a day of DLDOPA, uh, this is without carbidopa now, uh, uh, he started to get out of bed and walk and everything. It was really exciting. And, of course, three months later, in this follow-up, he was dyskinetic as hell. Uh, and that's when we got alarmed about the dyskinesias and what we were doing and the high doses. And uh, we began switching to go slow and low as an outpatient. Uh, but these are not early patients of Parkinson's. These were advanced patients that we were treating. Uh, and that's where the most dramatic effect is in Parkinson's. You start a newly diagnosed patient with L-DOPA, you don't see too much change. It's a little bit. Uh, but the advanced patients, it was dramatic. And that was what was so exciting in those days. We were all, uh, all those neurologists around when we were seeing these patients, because all these people were treating in the hospital, the Neurological Institute in New York, where Milliard and, and, uh, uh Roger DuVosam were bringing in their patients and, uh, they were all hospitalized patients. So we saw all this change and the same thing we saw at, at Penn. It was a real dramatic moment. And, uh, and this, this was happening in, in medical centers around the world. It was, just the couple of coast ghost places, it was everywhere. Uh, and so we all were seeing this. Uh, and it wasn't long, it was about uh, 1970 when the FDA gave approval for L-Dopa. Uh, and this is before Carbidopa came into being. And uh, of course, Carbidopa changed a lot. And uh, I also like to think of that, uh, if L-Dopa wasn't an effective therapy, would Carlson have received the Nobel Prize? I mean, uh, that really the nail in the coffin, didn't it? I mean, having a therapy come out of his work. And so uh, this is another important advance that you can say the impact of George has had. They will have Carlson get his Nobel Prize in that sense. Well, at least that's my speculation. I don't know if he would have gotten it without L-Dopa being a good therapy or not, but I, I speculate he might not have.
0: I think you're probably right about that.
1: Yeah. So anyway, uh, I don't know if I answered your question or I got rambling off to something else.
0: You did. You taught, You ended with the uh, with a discussion about the first patient. I'm sure from the patient's perspectives and the community of patients and caregivers with Parkinson's, it was also a very, very big deal.
1: Oh, my goodness, of course. Again, the Lasker committee immediately recognized that uh, the FDA recognized that, you know, what was the double-blind trial? The single double-blind trial by uh, Mel Yar, uh published late in 1969. Uh, George Koch's 69 paper was in February. Uh, Yars, I think, was October, so, certainly in the fall sometime. But that was the double-blind trial. And it wasn't the kind of double-blind trial you do today. Uh, it was to uh, read the methodology in that paper. Uh, but it still was some double-blind, uh, you know, with, with placebo. And, uh, but anyway, uh, it was, you know, these are some of the things are so obvious when you can get a person to get up and walk and they couldn't before. You don't really need double blind. I mean, uh, how many placebos are going to do that? Um, uh, you know, unless they're a functional patient, uh, that is a psychogenic patient. So th- this is really a, uh, a, a game changer. No question about it. And that's why I call it revolutionary. Also revolutionary because there was no such treatment like that before. If you was doing evolution, you would have a better, uh, anticholinergic drug or something of that nature. And this is a whole new kind of uh, treatment, uh, neurotransmitter treatment approach with, with the dopamine system. So it, uh, everything was exciting from that paper onwards, I think. Uh, and the impact of neuroscience is still enormous and the impact on psychiatry. Dopamine now plays a role in the behavioral uh, problems, uh, mood changes. Uh, impulse control changes, you know, depressions, all, all kinds of, uh, things are being related to the dopamine system, reward system, uh, the opioid systems, all, all the stuff relate to dopamine somehow. Uh, it's, it's quite amazing with the stuff and this, you know, and dopamine is the primary uh, motor system. That is the basic the primary motor system in non-humans like birds and reptiles and things like that. I mean... They they depend on this ancient transmitter dopamine uh, for their motor function. So uh, it's, it's uh, dopamine is in the spotlight everywhere in the lay press. We even hear about dopamine and, uh, and everything. They get their dopamine high and all the other things you hear about. So it's a, it's a common household word today, like almost like
0: botox. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Those are two things that my patients generally have heard before if I bring it up in clinic um, so you you alluded a bit to how this kind of birthed movement disorders as a field and you said it, it had been called extra pyramidal disorders and then a switch was made and and the field was born even though there were people who had Parkinson's clinics as you said and saw Parkinson's patients as you said this this really spawned, a new field within neurology, basically. Can you give us a little bit of that that story, that history?
1: Yes. Well, extrapyramidal disorders was coined by Wilson uh, in one of his lectures and published in Lancet. Uh, and he related to the, all these diseases, uh, the dystonias and tremors and rigidities and Parkinson's and Parkinson's. Uh, Oh, the basal ganglia disorders, and he called it extrapyramidal because basal ganglia, but it's not really an accurate label. I mean, uh, the motor system still depends on the, the pyramidal tract. I mean, it, even the basal ganglia will send its impulses through the thalamus to the cortex, and impulses come down through the, on the pyramidal tract system. Uh, so it's not truly extrapyramidal. There are some extrapyramidal pathways, uh, however. Uh, uh, and, but, uh, it's not clear still what they are doing, and they certainly don't seem to be all that important in, in, in basal ganglia and what we call movement disorders or tremors, because even cheap, first surgeries before Irving, um, before the, the, uh, and palatonomies by Irving Cooper, people were sectioning the pyramidal tract system, and they, they can get rid of tremor that way. So everything was going back to the pyramidal tracts. Uh, when uh, Bud Rowland asked me, he had, he had been one of my mentors at, at Columbia as a faculty, and then he took over Milton Shai's chairmanship at, at Penn when Milton Shai was asked to be chairman of Columbia. So he did a switch, and, and Bud went to Penn. Uh, he had been just an associate professor at Columbia, and then he became professor at Penn, sort of his lab, and he asked me to come down and uh, do the Parkinson's. Uh, field down there, and when I came down there, he wanted me to start a Parkinson clinic, and I said, "Look at it, uh, it's not just Parkinson. I want to do all these other disorders, dystonias, and tremors, and dyskinesias. and and, uh, and uh, so I, I want to. I don't want to call it a Parkinson clinic. I knew the name." And he said, "How oh, about an Grandmother's disorder Clinic?" I said, "That's a wrong term. Wrong term. It doesn't fit. We need another name." And so he and I sat knee to knee practically talking to each other, uh, about it. And then he was the one that said, Oh, how about movement disorders? I I jumped on. I said, that's it. You got it. We're going to call it movement disorders. And so I set up the first movement disorder clinic at Penn, uh, to to bring in these patients and to treat all these uh, cases. Um, and the name caught on because, uh, Subsequently I was asked to take over the pharmacology course, neuropharmacology course at the American Academy of Neurology meetings. And I said I would take the course over, but since most of it has to do with movement disorders, I want to change the name to movement disorder course. And so that became well known, movement disorders. Then I started the unusual movement disorder seminars, the evening seminars, uh, invited David Marson to join me, and the two of us did it for 20 years. Um, and so uh movement disorders on, and uh, and then the, the idea came that why not have a, a society of professionals, uh, and uh, we needed a journal. Basically, it was the need for a journal, and I said if we're going to have a journal, uh, mm-hmm. it should be owned by the, the neurologists in a field that they can use the income to support their society. So uh, we we came up, I asked David, he wants to join me. And we was trying to start the movement disorder society and the, the world federation of Neurology meeting. Oh, maybe it wasn't, um, was being held in New York. And anyway, I put a flyer out for those interested in, uh, uh joining movement disorder society You know, we'll try to have a dues like $10 a year, some hundred dollars a year, maybe. Uh, and most of it would go to the journal and, um, so we got a lot of people responding yes, and we started the society and started the journal, and uh, all that started in nineteen, I think, eighty four, at the World Congress of Neurology meeting in Hamburg. And so uh, this is uh, thats how that got started, and the society's been going strong since. And this is a podcast for the society. Sure is. <laughs> and, uh, there it is. So that's how the society got started.
0: Well, you've told us about a lot of ways that you've impacted the field of movement disorders from the very beginning. And you honestly, you're, you're practically a celebrity in the field of movement disorders, as, as celebrity as one can be in the niche of movement disorders within the niche of neurology. What are you most proud of as one of these founders, grandfathers, godfathers of this field?
1: Well, actually, uh, I am very proud of starting the Movement Disorder Society and being its first president um, and setting the tradition of a democratic organization so that one moves on, one doesn't stay on, and you do your term and you move on and uh, let the younger guys come on, and they're all better than the older guys as they come up. And this is how to get stronger and stronger with each generation of new presidents and leaders. Um But another thing I'm particularly proud of is the the World Parkinson Congresses, uh, where we would have patients actually join with neurologists and basic scientists. We're all gathered together, and I got that started. Um, Unfortunately, I was not the one to think of the idea. That idea came out from uh, the director of NIH, who, who suggested we should do something like that. And it was brought back to my attention, and I said, well, then we should do it. So I got the Parkinson's Foundation uh, support, and we started it, and uh, brought the race of money and had our first Congress. Uh, and uh, it's been going well ever since. It's now every three years. But the next one will be in Barcelona in July 2023. So, uh, but it's, it's still going strong. And uh The patients around the world with Parkinson's join it. About a third of the the attendees are patients, a third basic scientist, and a third neurologist with scattering of nurses and physical therapists, occupational therapists, and so forth, all interposed. And with the workshops and plenary sessions and um, parallel sessions, it's really very good. And it's a way for patients to actually come face to face with scientists, and the scientists actually see what a patient looks like. Uh, so the feeling is really good. There's patients come away knowing there's hope, and all that research that's going on. So I, I'm, I'm particularly pleased that that got off the ground and got going as well. So and of course starting the journal, which is. Uh, to me was of academic importance for the field if it's going to grow. They have a place to publish its papers and uh, and it's spawned so many other journals I mean I mean the number of uh, particularly open access journals now is enormous in uh, the whole field of movement disorder that's just how many people are going to the field it's just a, and actually the movement disorder Congress is thousands of people and when there's zoom it's like 10,000 people. Uh, it, it's just incredible. Uh, but even in-person meetings, you know, when we hit 3,000 when the meeting was in Paris, that was something. But we're, we've grown beyond that even in in-person meetings. And, uh, everybody's looking forward to the next in-person meeting of uh, the Movement Disorder Society. So it, it's, it's very good to see the, fu- the future is, is very bright. Um, I think having the patients come to having meetings and they feel part of it. I mean, it is their disease, isn't it? it is, they really should own it and we're just there to help them. Uh, and so it's very nice to see that, uh, as part of, uh, one of the things I can take some credit for, perhaps.
0: It's hard to choose, right? Because you can take credit for at least partially for so many things, phenomenological, uh, classifications and the society and the journal and, and all of, all of that. As an educator myself, I think the phenomenological classifications is something that I really want to understand the history of because it's so important to be able to pique people's interests in movement disorders by giving them something to start with, you know, something to work from.
1: Yeah, no, it is uh, important to have that classification and that that's... Also, an evolving target. It's not. It's not going to remain the same. Uh, I've went through several different classifications of dystonias, for example, and, those, and the latest last one was in 2013. Um, uh, and and you know, as you learn more about the, these diseases and new genes and so forth, you, you have new classification schemes, and you were it's an evolving picture, which is good. That's that shows the field is growing. I always enjoyed that. So my old classification went by the wayside and now the new classification, this is the way it, it should be. If you have a growing field, uh, you don't want to remain logged into something, uh that's now uh, out of fashion and, and archaic with all the new knowledge. So it's really good to see the evolution of a uh, whole field. And that's all, all of neurology, probably not just, uh, movement disorders, of course.
0: That segues very well into my next question. Uh, You've worked a fair amount over the years on various methods for neuroprotection of dopaminergic neurons, and now many angles are being looked at in movement disorders and Parkinson's to find that elusive disease modification that patients always ask us about. There's been a lot of recent efforts to target removal or prevention of aggregation of abnormal proteins like alpha-synuclein, and now there are arguments from Alberto Espe and others, about whether that is even the right approach. Are we putting all our eggs in the wrong basket? Should we instead be focusing on boosting normal brain proteins or on the immune system, et cetera, et cetera? And like you said, how should we even classify and study movement disorders in this complex world of genomics and myriad risk factors and variable phenotypes It can seem really overwhelming to anyone who has any kind of stake in this. What have you learned from your own successes and failures and those you've witnessed during your career? What advice do you have for the up-and-comers in movement disorders today who are trying to fit that next piece into the puzzle?
1: Well, things are always more complex than it first seems to be. Um, and uh, and that's in, in any field, of course, as you get more information, you realize all the problems and you all, often go down the wrong rabbit hole uh, before you find the right place to be. Um, and but that that's expected and you, you learn in the process and you're also making contributions. If you find something that's really the wrong approach, then you you lock it down and you report your findings and people won't go there anymore. Uh, and there's something better to do. Uh, what the right answer is going to be in, in any of these degenerative diseases is not clear at the start. And uh, we, we even now, we were speculating it might be alpha-synuclein, as you said. Dr. Espe has a different idea. And only about 80% of all Parkinson's diseases is probably uh, alpha-synucleinopathy anyway. I mean, the, the other degenerations of the nigra cause symptoms of Parkinson's disease as well, particularly some uh, younger uh onset forms or genetic forms. And uh, so, I mean, there's gonna be more than one answer in solving Parkinson's disease, but uh, since the great majority do have alpha-synucleinopathy, uh, it doesn't seem unreasonable to attack that protein and see what it can do. We just don't have a marker for that protein in brain to know how successful it is. Uh, I think Alzheimer's has led the way in, in the antibody uh, treatment approach. Uh, with that, their antibodies against amyloid, and uh, and again clinically it wasn't effective, but that does remove amyloid. Would uh, really be nice to know if our treatments with antibodies for alpha synuclein actually does remove alpha synuclein, but we don't have the marker, so we don't really know. We just don't see the clinical benefit yet. Uh, it doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. It may take a You have to go to very early stage patients, perhaps. You know, you have to have the right patient. Maybe advanced patients are not the right patients. So there's a lot of, and again, the lesson can be from the L-DOPA story. Just because you didn't get the the desired results or you had side effects from from your L-DOPA treatment doesn't mean it wasn't the right idea. You just didn't know how to do it right. So it's it's more than just the idea. It's how, how to proceed and do the study and get the right to get the right answer, and that's why the f d a requires uh they don't count failures of a drug and so there'll be many reasons for drug failure uh including the right doses, the right formulations, the right how do you administer it, and so forth uh, how many times a day you take it, and so forth they only count winners so if you have a drug that really does make a change in improving a person's life then and it's a winner and you just need to confirm it and you can probably get a drug improved. And so the same thing is going to happen with the uh, successful, eventually successful treatment and slowing the disease progression. Uh, and uh, how to prove the slowing progression. If we had a marker, that would be one way, but uh, so we don't know. And, and there's some people do have the uh, autoimmune hypothesis in mind. Some people have other hypotheses that that's fine. I mean, they, they should be tackled and uh, hope for the, that you're going you're the one on the right track, but you may not be, but there's lots of opportunity there and it's not just Parkinson's disease. I still think back about what were the first neurodegenerative diseases to be successfully treated uh well it was actually the vitamin deficiency diseases very very for example uh, our niacin deficiency I don't, and b1 deficiency all these diseases vitamin deficiency. Uh, they they did devastating diseases, right? They were, and no one knew what, what the cause was until they were discovered to be vitamin deficiencies. And then you, you prevent them with vitamins and you can treat uh, them with vitamin uh, supplements and so forth. I mean, uh, and what about Wilson's disease? We knew, uh, we, don't, we still didn't know the gene for Wilson's disease for a long time, but we were treating Wilson's disease by removing copper. So you knew the pathogenesis was a copper toxicity. Uh, and it turned out to be a genetic disease and copper uh, excretion problems. And uh, But you eliminate copper or you avoid copper and you avoid copper. And in that combination, you can prevent the disease. uh You can treat it. You don't have to have gene therapy. So there could be, in other words, treating the pathogenesis has so far been proven more valuable than, than treating gene defects so far. Now, maybe we're just not there yet in gene therapy, but I think that's a great future. For those who go through that field, a, certainly we have already, uh, you know, pediatric uh, muscle atrophy diseases uh, and uh, and muscular dystrophy, uh, you know, muscle disease you can treat. Now, uh, genetically, Huntington's disease, uh, maybe that there, there's we know about that disease for a long time. We still don't know how to adequately treat the disease, even though we knew the gene defect. So, uh there's going to be others hopefully if the genetic treatments become around that would be a better way to go maybe uh but uh in the meantime trying to find out the pathogenesis and treat that uh so far it has been always a, a great outcome if you hit it right um uh, uh for a while that people thought that low dopamine was the cause of parkinson's disease but that was a that's just an epiphenomenon that's it's the cause is the degeneration of the nigra and you get low, don't mean you get low the clinical effects. But if you, get, why is the disease get worse in Parkinson's? Why is it spread? Why do you get other symptoms besides the motor symptoms you, and you get dementia? And the, the great majority of people as they age will get dementia with Parkinson's disease. And that's probably because of the alpha-synucleinopathy spreading to the cortex. So if you can't treat that spread uh, don't let the rogue protein spread to other tissue, other cells, you might prevent progression of disease and, and avoiding dementia. That would be probably, in fact, if it, years ago, I would say decades ago when I was asked by NIH, what's the most unmet need in Parkinson's disease, I said, and this is when we had L-Dopa now, I said, it's the dementia. Uh, if we can avoid getting this progression to dementia, that would be a great boom People could live longer with an intelligent life. And, and even if they even if they have to be in a wheelchair, to be able to be alert and, and uh, communicate and so forth would be very important for them. So there's a lot of aspects to, to Parkinson's disease as well as any other disorder, of course, and, and in the field of movement disorders. So there's a lot of approaches a young person can go into. Uh, the opportunity is enormous. Uh, in fact, it's so big today. <laughs> I must say, I have a hard time keeping up with the field. Uh, So many papers and meetings and everything else. Uh, It's very hard for a person getting started. But you have to pick a niche and you have to pursue it if you really believe in it. Uh, Don't give up too early. Uh, Stick with it. But then if you know it's really wrong, then switch. It's an art. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can you possibly conceive of what you think might be on the list of most impactful papers of the 21st century, something that potentially has yet to be discovered or published?
1: I mean, I, I think the future is bright. I don't know what it's going to be, but I certainly think we're on the verge, on the cusp of slowing down progression of diseases, uh, whether through its pathogenesis that I remarked about or genetics. Mechanisms. Uh, there's so much more to learn, and it may well be the reactions, uh, the uh, immunological reactions against cells dying and, and its bad effects. It may be multi, multilateral approaches uh, to treating these diseases. Not one drug, like in cancers, you have to use multiple drugs. We may have to use multiple approaches in Parkinson's disease and not one a single drug. But you have to show that a drug does something before you can even use it as a base for adding something else to it. Um, so that, that's why I think all these, and that's why the Parkinson's study group was so important when it got started. That was another thing I might have a little bit of credit for it as well. I've worked with Ivor Shulson in starting it. It was his idea, and I he asked me to join him, and we together we sort of pushed on it uh, and brought in a bunch of great uh, neurologists to work in this field. And we started the first study uh, looking to see whether or not we can slow the progression of Parkinson's disease with the high doses uh, of tocopherol and... Uh, uh, Deprenol, which is now called Selegiline, uh, and those were the start of uh, neuroprotective trials in Parkinson's disease, and uh, the PSG is moving along well with other studies as well, and other diseases have their own study groups, and and uh, and these study groups are in other countries as well. The Germans have their own study groups and so forth. I mean, uh, so all these things, I, I just see great. I think if you're a young patient with this disease, there's a lot to look forward to. You're going to be much better, you know, later on. When that year is going to be, every patient's asked when we're going to get the cure. All I can tell them is that, no, I'm going to give you a date, but we're always one year closer. Every year, we're a year closer to find the cure. So uh, that's how I would look at it right now. We just don't know what the right answer is going to be. Uh, and it may just, again, have to be multiple answers to get to the the perfect one, but uh, I think, you know, all this takes time. It takes effort and money. It takes bright people, and that's the wonderful thing to see all these bright people coming into the field of movement disorders, and therefore, I think the future for the patients is is definitely great.
0: Thank you for this wonderful discussion. The podcast lasted a bit longer than I expected, but Boy there is just so much to talk about with you. So I I appreciate the time that you've taken today and and any any last words before we sign off?
1: No, thank you for having me. I, I had fun talking with you, and I hope to meet you someday.
0: Absolutely. At the next in-person meeting, right?
1: Right.